Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. I'm excited to continue our sermon series. We're actually wrapping up our sermon series here today called uh, Gospel-Centered Church with a sermon title that God is for you. And if you're tuning in to the audio version of this that's on Spotify and other versions of uh, how we do podcasting, you might hear some cars going by in the background or maybe some music or some children laughing. If you can't see this visually, um, I am in downtown Clarksville. I'm at the Clarksville Commons, and I want to preach this sermon as kind of a model from the downtown Commons, as a model of what we want to be as a church. We want to be in the city for the city, and we are here to stay, even if that means that uh, sometimes it's not the best audio quality. Um, Sometimes it's not always to our liking to be on mission, but we are on mission here in Clarksville. I'm excited to be wrapping up this Gospel-Centered Church series. Um, Pastor Derek said a few weeks ago as he introduced this series that the gospel is the big E on the I chart, and we don't want to miss that. Uh, We want to stay centered on Jesus, centered on the gospel. And you see, uh, last week he even talked about gathering around the gospel and how sometimes we can add our personal preferences and we can add to the scriptures. Um, Unbiblical excess is what Derek called it. That sometimes we can take our preferences and put it as a matter of righteousness for other Christians and how when we actually lay aside our preferences and just look at the plain, simple gospel, the plain, simple scriptures, we let that guide how we share in unity with one another. We don't want to add anything to the gospel and we want to avoid adding our preferences to the gospel. And my friends, as we are exploring the sermon series, this is not enough for us to be a Christian church. It's not enough for us to even be a good church. Church planning is too hard and time is too short. We don't have time for anything less than centering our entire church culture on the gospel. We don't want to add to it. We don't want to subtract from it. It is too important. We want to be bullseye on the gospel and every single thing that we do, nothing less. So as we begin, I want to remind us of what we are defining as the gospel. My friends, the gospel is the true story about Jesus, who is God, stepping out of eternity into human history, solving the problem of brokenness through the sacrifice of himself, reuniting us with God our Father, giving us himself through the Holy Spirit, and ushering in a completely new way of life that ends with peace and glory with himself. So the gospel, literally, the term means good news. And it's good news about Jesus, who actually actively stepped into the world to bring us back to our Father. He actually sends us his Holy Spirit to reside within us, to mediate the love and grace of Jesus. He leads us into a new way of living. And one day, that new way of living will ultimately end with us in peace and glory with him, spending eternity with him. And so um, uh, as we wrap up the sermon series, uh, uh, the title of the sermon is God is for you. And the question that this sermon answers today is this, how does God feel about you? What do you think? When you think about that question, how does God feel about you? What are the first things that come to mind? Now, for some of us, we might perceive that maybe God feels a sense of anger or disappointment towards us. For others of us, it might say, oh man, God is pretty happy with me. God's pretty excited I'm on his team. 
for some of us, maybe you think, how does God feel about you? Maybe he feels distant. Or maybe he feels aloof. And as we look at uh, comparing what the modern evangelical Christian church says in America versus what a gospel-centric church would say about this topic, I think that we can begin to unveil and uncover some things that uh, will be helpful for us to mine today as we think through this idea of God is for you. So if you go into most Christian churches here in the United States, um, that they'll say some certain things like this, right? So the Christian church says, God can be disappointed or angry with you if you don't obey him. The Christian church says, uh, God says, you'll figure it out. You'll be okay. The Christian church says, God will punish you if you sin. Also, if you go to a Christian church, many times you'll hear this phrase, um, you need to unleash the greatness inside of you. And many Christian churches here in the United States will say, God did his part, now you do your part. But we have to juxtapose this with what the scriptures say, with what the gospel says about God and has his attitude towards you. In a gospel-centered church, you'll hear things like, every action of God towards you is motivated by his self-giving love for you. A gospel-centered church says God is intimately active and engaged in your life at all times. He's not aloof. God cannot punish a Christian for sin, period. He can't punish a Christian for sin. God heals the brokenness inside you and gives you his greatness. Jesus did his part. Jesus did your part so you can rest and receive. And so as we begin to unpack and mine these incredible truths about separating what a a Christian church might say about how God feels towards you versus what the gospel says about how God feels towards you. I'm going to have three points, and they're going to be all the same. Uh, God is for you. God is for you, and God is for you. Those are our points. But the points are going to be said like this. God is for you. The second point is, God is for you. And the third point is, God is for you. So let's begin by saying, God is for you. Exodus 34, as we begin, one of those famous passages in the Bible, this passage is often quoted throughout the entirety of the scriptures. It's actually referenced more than 20 times in the Bible to describe who God is. And I think as we read it, you'll understand why. So this is what Exodus 34, starting in verse 6 says. The Lord passed before Abraham and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, as we have previously stated, God uh, does not punish sin if you're a Christian. We've said things like God's attitude towards you is just love, right? We literally just said every action of God towards you is motivated by his self-giving love for you. But when we read this, the question is, is God kind and forgiving in one verse? And then the very next verse, he seems to be angry and mean, visiting the sins of one generation onto their grandchildren. How do we reconcile this? See, it sounds on the surface that anger and disappointment from God are possible, doesn't it? He's going to be angry if you sin, but he's still going to love and forgive you. And it's very important here to understand that within the scriptures, as they describe God's character, 
It is meant to provide a symmetry. It is meant to provide a balance. And what we see here in this text, especially as it says in the beginning, he, God is graceful and, mer- and merciful, right? But it says, but by will no means clear the guilty. What this verse is creating for us in the second book of the Bible is a tension between God's mercy and his justice. And the tension comes with how will God respond when his people that he's talking to fail him, right? When they don't meet his standards. And we see this tension of God's character, both of his mercy and his justice throughout the entirety of the scriptures. We see over and over and over again in the Old Testament, a pattern of the nation of Israel constantly experiencing God's mercy and God's judgment. We see that Israel will fail often. And when they fail, they enter into a period of rebellion. And then what God does is he sends them away. He enslaves them to a foreign nation. He rejects them. He repels them out of Israel and out of their homeland. And then we see that Israel repents. God restores them. And then they immediately go back to failing again. So it's failure, rebellion, enslavement, repentance, and restoration on repeat. And once they're restored, they start to let in false gods in. They begin to fail. Then they rebel against God. Then they get enslaved. Then they repent. They cry out to God. He listens. And there's restoration again. It's like Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day over and over and over again throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. But we see thousands of years later, God is then responding to a wayward people with this covenant love, this steadfast love that Exodus 34 refers to. And with this, 1 John is one of the clearest examples of this in 1 John chapters 2 and chapters 4. So here's a few verses from chapters 2 and 4 of 1 John. This is what John says. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation or the wrath-averting sacrifice for our sins. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Now we see this exodus promise of God's covenant faithful love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace. We see all of these promises fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus. Uh, And so thinking about these passages from 1 John, we see that God is merciful. He's merciful by not giving us the punishment that we do deserve. We see that God is gracious. He's giving us an unearned favor that we don't deserve. We see that God is slow to anger. We see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, he's constantly quick to forgive. He's slow to anger. He's giving opportunity after opportunity, but it is all waiting for the person of Jesus to come and arrive into the world. So God was withholding his anger until his son could come and assuage it as the world waited for a savior. We see that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness because his covenant faithful love depends on his love, not ours. Because it literally says in 1 John, it says not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. That's the definition of that covenant faithful love. We see that God is forgiving of sin. It says right here, he says, your sins are forgiven. Then it also says, remember what the Exodus passage says, God does not clear the guilty. God didn't clear it without any process. What God does is he transfers 
our guilt onto Jesus on the cross. So he transfers our guilt onto Jesus on the cross. And then remember it said at the end of that Exodus 34 passage says, God visited the iniquity of all the people onto their children and their children's children. Well, actually, God takes it a step farther. He visited the iniquity of all people for all time onto one person, the Son of God, Jesus. And so what he does is not only does he transfer our guilt to Jesus on the cross, but he transfers our penalty to Jesus on the cross. So what we see is that God's love and his justice meet at the cross of Jesus. So that, as it says in 1 John 3, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. I don't know about you, but sometimes my heart condemns me. Sometimes I wake up and feel guilt or shame about the things I've done in the past, or maybe even the things I've done yesterday. But what it says here, that God says, whenever our heart condemns us, what is God's attitude? God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. And what we see is that God's identity is love and his work is to rescue us. God's identity is love and his work is rescue us. Remember, we're starting off by saying God is for you. So we have to understand who God is. His identity is love and his work is rescue. Now, so often when you go into a modern evangelical church today, a Christian church, when they talk about God's identity, they're going to say a few things. The first thing they're going to say is God is disappointed or angry with you. God can be disappointed or angry with you if you don't obey him. So essentially what they're saying is that God's actions towards you, God's heart towards you can be disappointment or anger based on your performance to obey his laws. And what this is doing underneath the surface is that is guilt-based motivation. That's saying you need to feel some guilt. You need to feel some responsibility for God's emotions, that God's emotions might change based on your obedience. And you don't want to let God down, do you? So then you have to go do good work and obey and don't do certain things and do other things, right? That is guilt-based motivation. And it works in the short term but it doesn't actually change the heart. So that idea of a, walking into a Christian church, you'll hear God can be disappointed or angry with you if you don't obey him. The second thing you'll hear often is it says, God says, you'll figure it out. You'll be okay. And in that attitude is just a pulling back of God. He's distant. He's aloof. He doesn't automatically give you his attention and affection. You've got to earn it. And you see how modern Christian Western churches do this is that you have to get God's attention by serving, giving, and being involved in the church. But if you just show up on Sunday mornings and you're just passive, then eh, God says, you'll figure it out. You'll be okay. But he really cares about those people that serve and give and pour themselves out. And so what this generates is both guilt for not serving. And then they say, well, you can assuage your guilt. You can get God's attention and God won't be mad at you if you just give and serve more to our church to support our organization, which is akin to serving God. You see how that can be a cyclical cycle to pull people in, give them guilt for not being obedient, giving a pathway towards obedience that actually grows and benefits a local church. And you can get God's attention and he'll give you special. He'll give you special attention. He won't be aloof with you if you're really serving and giving because you're one of his special kids. That's what a Christian church says. Now, then we got to go to the gospel-centric church. We got to go, what does the gospel say? The gospel says that every action of God towards you is motivated by his self-giving love for you. (coughs) 
excuse me, this idea is that God cannot be sovereign and disappointed in you. God cannot be sovereign and disappointed in you. Let me explain. Um, it, the definition of disappointment is unmet expectations, right? I have an expectation if I ask someone to help me with the dishes, right? If I've got guests over my house and we're wrapping up there, I say, hey, could you help me with the dishes? They say, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And my expectation is that they will, right? But then let's say they forget about it and they leave and I'm stuck with all the dishes. I'm disappointed, right? Because I had an expectation and that expectation was not met. Now, here's the question. Is God eternal? Yes, that's by nature who he is. He is outside of time. That means that God does not experience time sequentially like you and I do. So uh, as an example, um, he sees all of time in one eternal present. That's what C.S. Lewis calls it. And the example to help us understand this is let's imagine you and I are at the Macy's Day Parade in New York City, right? So we're standing there stationary, and then we are watching the parade come by. So then you see the Snoopy float, right? And then you see the SpongeBob float, and you see the Charlie Brown float. And you see the minions flow, right? And so you're standing in one place and you see it sequentially. Now imagine with me if you were in the Goodyear blimp. If you're in a blimp above the parade, above New York City. And you look down and you see the beginning and you see the middle and you see the end of that parade, right? So you can see all of it at once. My friends, this is how God sees your life. He knows the day that you're born. He knows the day that you'll die. And he sees everything in between in what C.S. Lewis calls the eternal present. Everything is present with him. So now let's follow this logic as it relates to his expectations of you. Can God be God and have an expectation of you that you cannot meet? That would be impossible. That would be ridiculous. Not like me telling my three-month-old daughter and having an expectation. I, I stare at her and I say, hey, baby Autumn, you can't stand up yet, but I want you to lift up this 50-pound dumbbell. She doesn't even understand English. She doesn't even understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. So how in the world is she going to be able to pick up a 50-pound dumbbell? That's dumb of me. That's a completely unreasonable expectation. And if I were to say that around anyone, they would laugh because it's so silly, right? How in the world could I be disappointed in baby Autumn for not picking up a 50-pound weight as a three-month-old baby? That'd be ridiculous. Well, God's not ridiculous. God is logical in many ways. He created logic. And so when you look at it, he never has an expectation of you that you cannot meet. He's ever disappointed in you because he knows every action that you will ever take. So it's impossible for God to be disappointed with you and still be God. Every action of God towards you is motivated by his self-giving love for you. My friends, he, God has a self-giving love that seeks your highest and greatest good. This means that sometimes God's actions towards you might seem like hatred or indifference. But as we talked a few weeks ago, God is seeking and working your highest good in everything that he is doing for you, which means often we don't know what our highest good is, but God does. And because he's sovereign and he is loving, he is working everything out for your greatest and highest good. But in the moment, it might not seem like that. In the moment, life might be challenging and difficult. When you lose the job, when you have the health diagnosis, when you have the marriage difficulties, when you lose a child, it might be challenging and difficult to see in that moment. How in the world can this be loving towards me? 
But remember, God has an eternal view of your life. And you see, what happens is, is if God, if every action of God is motivated by his love for you, his self-giving love for you, if every action of God is that way, then you have grace-based motivation, not guilt-based motivation. If God can be angry or disappointed in you, then you are motivated by guilt. But if God's, if every action of God towards you is motivated by his self-giving love for you, that means that you can never disappoint him. He will infinitely love you. And then that is actually what inspires us towards obedience. That is grace-based motivation. Then we, we are compelled to follow and serve and love a God that consistently, ceaselessly loves us in spite of us not doing the things he asks us to do. You see, that's the difference between guilt-based motivation and grace-based motivation. The second thing we see, kind of the answer to, well, you know, God telling us, you'll figure it out, you'll be okay being distant and aloof. My friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel-centered church says that God is intimately active and engaged in your life at all times. My friends, as we look at the scriptures, we see that the Father sends his Son for us. The Son sends the Holy Spirit for us. That God in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is working for us. He's engaged in our life. He's active in every minuscule way. And in our need and in our rebellion, in our lack of love for him, he saves us. So do you see how intimate and engaged and active he has to be just to save us? But then the Bible says these incredible things. He says that he's numbered every hair on our head, that he has determined uh, the number of our days. He says, the Bible says that a sparrow does not even fall without him knowing how much more will he care for us. If he cares for the lilies in the field, if he cares for flowers in a field and make sure that they're cared for, how much more will he care for you and me? My friends, the Bible says that if a, if a, if a son asks his father for bread, will he give him a stone? Of course not. If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Of course not. And then the Bible says that if, if evil fathers, if imperfect fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will our Father in heaven give us exactly what we need? He is intimately active and engaged in our life at all times. So my friends, you have the favor of God on you, whether you serve in the church or not. You have his attention. You have his focus. And then we serve and love others within the context of the church. We give financially to the church, not to earn God's favor, but we, we do it from God's favor, not for it. So our first point is that God is for you. And God's identity is love and his work for us is rescue. Second point, God is for you. So we saw the identity of God. Now we have to look at the identity of us. We're going to answer the question of um, how does God feel towards me? What is his attitude towards me? What does God think about me? We have to first look at who he is, then we have to look at who we are. And the best place to find out who we are is, unfortunately, Ephesians 2. Look with me here at Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Well, how does God feel about me? Well, I got to understand who am I? So I know who God is. His identity is love and his work for me is rescue, right? But who am I? Well, unfortunately, what we see in these first three verses is that our character is disobedience. That there's a standard that God has for us and we don't meet it consistently. That we actually rebel actively against God. Our character is disobedience. Next, we see that our motivation is to follow the desires of our body and our mind. This means that our actions are warped and our thinking is warped. That's, that's our motivation is, is by warped bodies and warped minds. So our character is disobedience. Our motivation is to follow the desires of our body and mind. And then our action is to bring ourselves under wrath and into death. It says we're children of wrath and we are spiritually dead. Well, that's not good news, is it? But it doesn't end there. But we see that who is God in relation to me and in my needs, right? Who is God in relation to me? Well, God's character we see in verse four is mercy. It says God being rich in mercy. God's character is mercy. Next, we see that God's motivation is love. He's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So God's character is mercy. His motive for us is love. And his action is to make us alive again. His action is to bring us life. He's made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is who we are. And this is who God is in relation to our needs. So um, if you were to go to, I want to compare a Christian church versus a gospel-centered church as it relates to our identity. Right? What does the Christian church say about our identity versus a gospel-centered church? So the Christian church says, many times you'll walk into a contemporary Christian church and they'll say, you need to unleash the greatness inside of you. And subsequently, along with that is you need to follow your destiny. You need to be who you are, right? Be yourself. That you have greatness within you that God unleashes, right? But my friends, there is so much pride and self-referentialness to this. There's a self-referential attitude. Uh, another way to put it is anthro centric. It's man centric. See, it's incredible pressure to say that you have greatness living inside of you, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like there's greatness living inside of me. Sometimes I wake up and I just, man, man, I just feel like I stink today. I'm not in a good place today. But what if you have a pastor that keeps telling you every Sunday, you have greatness and Jesus unlocks your greatness and he leads you into your destiny, right? What if he keeps saying that, but you don't feel it? Well, I mean, that's incredible pressure, isn't it? You kind of got to fake it till you make it there. Or you feel this imposter syndrome, right? You feel the syndrome of like, I'm not really a true Christian because I don't feel this great sense of greatness inside of me. And then what you see is that your identity can be cast to the wind. Then you find whatever makes you feel great. The job, the relationship, your children, all of those things can make you feel a sense of identity and purpose because the, the consistent narrative coming at us from the Western Christian churches, you have greatness locked inside of you. Well, who's going to give you that greatness? Somebody's got to give you that greatness, right? 
those of you having kids or work or something to make you feel like you're valuable. And then God's just kind of the string that pulls the value out of you. Now, when you come to a gospel-centered church, it says Jesus heals the brokenness inside of you and gives you his greatness. Now that, my friends, is absolutely freeing because in the gospel, what happens is your identity is interwoven and dependent on Jesus's identity. And Jesus is a man of greatness. You see, we don't inherently have it. Our natural inclination apart from Christ is to, is to be disobedient. And so this also speaks to then how we speak to our heart. Uh, the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? But then it also says God is the one who searches the hearts and the minds of us, right? So then what we see is that we, we need to actually fight our natural inclinations. Our natural inclination is to sin, to be selfish, to fulfill the desires of the body and the mind, to lead us into wrath and death. That's our natural inclination apart from Christ. And so what we can do is, especially in the Psalms, we can listen to our heart, but then we can speak the truth of God to our heart, like the psalmist does when he says, why are you downcast, O my soul, hope in the Lord? So you see, he's acknowledging that his soul, his heart, the seat of his emotions is downcast. And he says, hey, don't be that way. Hope in the Lord. So do you see how we can actually speak to our heart? We can speak to our natural inclinations and speak the truth to them. We do not have to be slaves to every emotion that we feel. Now, isn't this freeing then? You don't have innate greatness, but you are given greatness by Jesus. When you choose to follow him, your identity is interwoven with his identity and he is perfect and he is a man of greatness and he infuses you with his greatness. So it's not innate, it's given. And that means that it's freely given to you by God himself. So when we say that God is for you, we start first by saying that God's identity is love and his work is rescue. And then it says that your identity is given, not earned. Your identity is given to you, not earned. Finally, God is for you. Let's look with me at Hebrews 7. It says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. My friends, Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive and resurrected from the dead, that means that right now he is praying for you. He is pulling for you. He is fighting for you. He is interceding for you. There is an ongoing work of Jesus after the cross and after his resurrection and after his ascension that is continuing on for 2,000 years to this day for you. He is working for you. He's fighting for you. He's pulling for you. And what does this give us? This gives us boldness. How much boldness? We can come to God in our need because Jesus is working for us. He's giving us his greatness. He's pulling us forward. He's fighting for us. And we see this clearly in, in, in Hebrews 10. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
Now, I find it so interesting. I just noticed this as I was reading it right now as I'm recording this. This isn't in my notes, but remember how we talked about Ephesians, that we were slaves. We were following the course of this world. We were doing the whims of our bodies and our minds. And then we see here in Hebrews, it says our hearts are sprinkled clean. That maybe another way to put it is our minds are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So we have a different way of thinking. And then our bodies are washed with pure water. See, when you come to Jesus, you believe in him. He works to purify you. He works to heal you. He works to make you holy. He is working to make you holy. And you see, if we have a great confidence because of Jesus' sacrifice, and then if we have a great high priest who is interceding for us, then we can draw near to God because he did everything to save us. And we can find hope because he is faithful to the end. So you see how he's working for us. He's laboring for us. He is laboring in his own faithfulness to sustain us, to lead us, to change us, and to make us holy and new again. And my friends, if you go to most Christian churches, you'll hear this phrase, God did his part, now you do yours. Jesus saves you, now your job is obey or potentially be punished. And you see how this fits in with this idea of a passive, aloof God, right? This passive, aloof God, he demands obedience and service, and he'll ignore you until you do it. And what's interesting is that obedience and service within the most modern contemporary churches just so happens to benefit the local church, doesn't it? Here's the deal. We're going to make you feel guilty that you're not doing enough. God might be angry and punish you, or he might be distant from you. So come to our church and serve and give And help God means help our organization. That's how most of those things get married in the modern evangelical Christian church. But a gospel-centered church says Jesus did his part and he did your part so that you can rest and receive the gospel. So what we see is that Jesus is tirelessly working on your behalf. He's laboring to make you lovable. You don't have to be lovable in and of yourself. Jesus is laboring to make you lovable lovable. Jesus is interceding for you in your sin, and your sin is already forgiven because he sacrificed himself 2,000 years ago at the cross for you. So Jesus is interceding for you, praying for you, fighting for you, pulling for you when you sin. Jesus then invites you into obedience, doesn't demand it, right? You're still loved and cared for even if you're a sinner and you're sinning, right? Because your core identity has been changed to being a saint. So Jesus is inviting you into obedience most often as we read the Bible, we see that doing what the Bible tells us to do just makes us better. It's actually for our good. Like it's for our good to do these things. And what we see is that love is seeking the greatest and highest good of another. And God gives of himself freely in love. He gives us himself. And then we see that everything we receive is passive and Jesus-centric. We're not earning a thing. There's no earning left for you at the cross. There's still action. There's still activity that Jesus invites us into, but the earning is done. It's solved. So Jesus did his part. part. He did your part so you can rest and receive. So our third point, wrapping up our third point, God is for you. So we see that God's identity is love and his work is rescue. Your identity is given, not earned. And God is tirelessly working on your behalf. My friends, what we center our church and our culture on truly does matter. It's not just enough to be a Christian church. We have to be gospel-centric. It's too hard. The gospel is too important. 
compromise. And so how does God feel about you? Well, the Christian church would tell you God's going to be disappointed or angry with you. God's like, ah, was aloof. You'll, you'll figure it out. You'll be okay. God could punish you if you sin. You need to unleash the greatness inside of you. And God did his part. Now you do your part. But how does God feel about you? What does the gospel say? The gospel-centered church, this church, Redeeming Hope says, every action of God towards you is motivated by his self-giving love for you. That God is intimately active and engaged in your life at all times. God cannot punish a Christian for sin, period, end of statement. Jesus heals the brokenness inside of you and gives you his greatness. Jesus did his part and he did your part so you can rest and receive the gospel. And my friends, the only way that you get to the gospel truth about you is if you believe in Jesus. Most people think they're Christians because they believe that Jesus was a real person, right? So if you go to majority of people in Clarksville, they say, oh yeah, I've always been a Christian. I went to church. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Well, that's not, that doesn't cut it. The Bible says even the demons believe and tremble. So what are we ultimately called to do? Well, it's repentance and faith. Repentance means making a 180 degree turn. It's walking in one direction and then turning around and walking in another direction. That's what repentance is. And faith is three things. Hear, believe, obey. God calls you to hear this message. He invites you to believe that it's true for you, that you have a deep need that you cannot satisfy on your own. And then to obey is to make Jesus Lord and King over your life. You actually come underneath his authority. You submit to him as Lord and King and Savior. And then he becomes your master. He guides and directs your life. That's what makes you a Christian. So you got to hear it. You got to believe it. But you got to obey by making Jesus Lord over your life. So if you're not yet a follower, I want to invite you to do that today. If you are a follower, then the beauty of the gospel is that all of this is true for you, regardless of your feelings or regardless of your sin. So you can sin and you can feel distant from God, but he still loves you. He still accepts you and you're still his. He's fighting for you. He's working for you. There's nothing left for you but grace. Hebrews 4, as we wrap up, says, Since then we have so great a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The famous author Eugene Peterson wrote many books. He's most well known for his um, summary translation of the Bible called Message, who has helped many millions of people understand the scriptures better. And Eugene Peterson's son Leif said at his funeral that his dad only had one sermon, that he had everyone fooled for 29 years of pastoral ministry, and that for all his books, Eugene Peterson only had one message. And this message was a secret that Leif said his dad had let him in on early in his life. It was a message that Eugene Peterson's son said his dad had whispered in his heart for 50 years. Words that he had snuck into his room to say over him as he slept as a child. And it's just four statements. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. And he is relentless. My friends, this is the truth of God for us today. 
Let it encourage us. Let this saturate into our church culture. And let's be a gospel-centered church. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.